Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your name is beautiful. Your name is wonderful. Your name is powerful. We are gathered here this morning because of who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, we thank you for a chance to come and uh, just to, to say thank you. We're, we're grateful that we get to come and be in your presence. And we're, we're grateful that you have the power to change us and to make us more like you. Lord, I pray that this morning, as we dive into your word, that we would see a little bit more about who you are, see what you've done for us, and that it would change us, and that we would, we would live more like Jesus because of what we see in scripture. And as we walk out these doors, that we would live differently because we've met with you. I ask you to give us focus this morning. Give us, uh, just give us your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, it is a privilege to, uh, to be able to open up scripture this morning. But before I do that, how about another round of applause for, uh, for our youth program this morning? That was, that was fun. That was fun. It is so, it's so fun to see something unique, something that's different. You know, we haven't, uh, I mean, we've done some kids programs before, but something that was written and produced by uh, folks here at our own church. It's uh, just such a great, uh, great opportunity and just fun to see uh, all the talent that our, our, our kids have as, they, as, they, as we raise them up in the, in the Lord. So, yeah, what a, what a great, uh, great time this morning. Um, so, I want to talk about some of the, the themes that we saw this morning as, as we get into God's Word. Uh, just real quickly, just as a way of introduction, my name is Scott Noel. I think I know just about everybody here this morning. I know most of you, but I've been a member here at Maranatha since 2004 with my wife Maggie and our three kids now. Um, get a chance to be the, the substitute teacher this morning as Aaron gets a much-needed uh, much and much-deserved uh, break from the Sunday morning routine as he's uh, traveling with his family. So we're going uh, to take an opportunity to dive a little bit deeper into uh, some of the scripture that we heard from our, uh, our kids program this morning. And so you're going to hear some things that, uh, that sound familiar, uh, but hopefully we'll, we'll go a little bit deeper and unpack them. Uh, God's word tends to speak for itself, but I'll try to draw out some illustrations and some examples that help us understand it a little bit more deeply. And, uh, you know, the, the thing that we, we see this morning is... You know, whether you're young or you're old, this idea of living differently, you know, shining like stars and living, living with a purpose and with a calling and, and being set apart. And the, the idea that really emerged for me as I studied this passage was an idea of contrast. This idea of contrast, something standing apart from something else in, in a way of comparison. So if you, uh, if you define contrast, contrast, as I looked it up, contrast is a striking exhibition of unlikeness, a striking exhibition of unlikeness. So it's, uh, it's typically used in comparison with something to something else. Contrast is used to draw attention to something. 
Uh, with clever use of contrast, you can focus attention on a key attribute or key features of a painting. I've got a couple examples. You can go to the first one here. We can see through use of contrast in this image, it focuses your attention right to the center of the painting because you've got the, the lights and it helps focus your attention on, on the dark, the darkness there, the, the, the boats right in the center. So with, with, with contrast, it draws your attention to something, and the greater the contrast, the more something will stand out and draw attention to itself. And that's, what, uh, that's really what the purpose of our passage this morning was. Uh, but we can also see what happens when there is no contrast. If we go to the next image, this is a Monet. I don't even know what I'm looking at. It's, it's foggy, right? There's, there, I think there's something in the background there, but when you look at that painting, your eyes don't really know what to look at, right? It kind of washes out. It's hard to tell what the purpose of this picture is other than, you know, maybe Monet dumps some, some blue paint on the whole thing and it just washes out. Uh, but so we see contrast in, in, in paintings or in art is it ultimately, and if you want something to be noticed, it needs to not just be different, but it has to be radically different. There's got to be a distinction in the differences that you see. You know, another, I think a great example of contrast is if you think about going to a department store to buy jewelry. My, li- my wife loves jewelry. She's always wearing big dangly earrings. And um, so, you know, so if you, if you go to a department store or a jewelry store and you walk up to the display case, right, it's all, it's lit up and it's bright and it's shiny. Uh, but there's a bunch of stuff. You see watches and bracelets and earrings and rings, and you see them all. And, you know, if you, you kind of look through and you, you find the one you want, and, and when, you know, the, generally the, the price tag can have some sticker shock to it, right? So if the clerk wants to really draw you in and help you understand, yeah, this is, this is the one that I really want, what do they do? So they, 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 you, you tell them, okay, I want this one right here, and they, they open up the case and they pull it out. And do they just set the, the diamond ring right on top of the glass display case? No. What do they do? They put it on a nice little soft piece of black velvet fabric, right? Why? Because they want you to notice every single sparkle, every twinkle, because that's what's going to get you to pull your checkbook out and write that check, right? They want you to notice and to be enamored with the distinction between the sparkles of the ring and the, and the blackness around it. And so that's, and that's the picture that we get from Scripture. You know, we heard it, shining like stars in the universe. You know, stars stand out because they are set against a backdrop that's dark. You know, you, the, you may not have ever thought about it, but the same stars that we see at night are, are still up there. They didn't go anywhere. You just can't see them because there's no contrast. But at night, set against a night sky when there's no clouds, they shine and they stand out very distinctly. There's a striking exhibition of unlikeness with stars in the night sky. And so, again, great, great example from the musical this well as we're, as we're talking about shining like stars. And so what I, what I want to do this morning is we're going to dig back into Philippians 2. And we're going to draw some insight from this passage about what it means to live a life of striking unlikeness, a, li- a life of contrast. And so we're going I'm I'm to point out a couple of things this morning. Uh, we're going we're to take a look at the foundation for a life of contrast. We're going to look at the fuel behind a life of contrast, and we're going to look at the fruit 
of a life of contrast. And so uh, before we dive into those things, let's go ahead and read together our scripture this morning. Philippians 2, uh, I'm going to start in verse 12 and go through verse 16. So the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. So before we get into the three F's that I laid out a moment ago, I think it's important, first of all, if we're talking about contrast as a basis of comparison, we have to understand what it is we are comparing to. And Paul tells us that in verse 15, he says, you may be blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. So I'm not going to belabor this point. I just want us to understand that that is the backdrop. That's the velvet cloth that we are to be set apart against or to contrast against. The environment that Paul was writing to was full of sin, twisted, crooked. Uh, some translations say warped, and I like that concept of being warped because uh, a board that's warped doesn't start out warped. It, it starts out straight, and over time, it bends to the point where if you see it in, uh, in Menards, you're not picking that board up. You're going to walk right past it. You're going to find another one because you want a straight board, right? That's the backdrop that Paul is writing to, and I don't think that I probably need to do a show of hands to get some agreement in this room this morning, that that is, that's the backdrop that we are living in today as well. I see some heads nodding. There's, there is much to, to be concerned with, and, and what Paul's talking about is culture. He's talking about the, the pull of culture away from the things of God. The pull of culture, the pull of our generation, our age, against what God's purpose for our life is. And there's, there's plenty to look at. Selfishness, greed, anger, fear. The, our generation is, is crooked, it's twisted, it's warped. And I think we can agree on that. And so our call then is to stand out against it. Not to abandon it, but to simply stand out and live a life in striking exhibition of unlikeness against the culture that is around us, to look differently. And so with that said, then let's take a look at the first, uh, the first point this morning, which is the foundation. What is the foundation of a life of contrast? And I think we find the answer to this one in verse 12. So I'm going to go back and read that. Philippians 2.12 says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The foundation is salvation. Because if the backdrop of our lives is a world, a generation, an age, that is corrupted and warped by sin, then it has to start by being saved, by being set apart. It starts with trusting in the death and resurrection of Christ. Because without that, we, we, we can't 
be set apart in the way that God wants us to. And so it starts with, with the, the saving work, the saving grace, the saving death and resurrection of Christ. And uh, just to take a moment, I know uh, th- this is familiar for a lot of us, but if we don't start there, not just today, but on a daily basis, if we don't keep coming back to it, we lose sight of it. And it's so easy f- to just to wash out like that Monet painting where we just, uh, you can't tell the difference between our lives and the lives of those around us. And so I'm just gonna, you know, some, a lot of you know, I, uh, I work with the Sunday school uh, for our for Maranatha here, and I do the Bible teaching for our kindergartners through our fourth graders every Sunday uh, during the fall, winter, and spring months. And our Sunday school curriculum has such a beautifully laid out illustration or, uh, I guess, path or understanding of the message of salvation. And I just thought it, it, it bared repeating this morning because it is the foundation. It is where it all starts. And so the, the way that it lays it out is there's five, five things to know. Number one, God rules. God created this world. He created us he spoke and it came to be. He put it together and he, put, he set it in motion. He rules, he's in charge. Number two, we sinned. God created us to be in relationship with him and we, through our actions and through the attitudes of our heart, have turned away from him. It started all the way back in the garden and it continues to this day in my life and because I know a little bit about everybody else here in yours as well. It's in all of, our, all of our lives, all of our hearts. God rules, we sinned, and we are separated from God. That relationship is damaged. But number three, God provided. God didn't want to leave us where we were, so he provided a way for that relationship to be restored. And he provided by sending his son into this world who set aside his divinity, came to this world, lived a perfect life, and then died as a sacrifice for our sins. Number four, Jesus gives. Jesus then in turn offers this sacrifice to each and every one of us individually. He says, you can have life. You can have a relationship with me because of what I've done. I shed my blood to cover your sins, to restore you. And then number five, we respond. We respond to that call, to that gift. A gift that is merely offered is not a gift that you possess. You must take possession of it. You have to accept it. And we do that by by giving our lives, by accepting that death and resurrection for ourselves as a payment for our sins. That is where it starts. So we, in order to live a life of contrast, we have to accept or confront our own need for salvation before we can live a life that is in striking unlikeness to the world around us. When we take note of this contrast in the life of Christ, it highlights our own need for the gift that he gives. And I think it's important to note here that Paul writes and he says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And this idea of working it out, that's, that's what it means. It starts with salvation. When I, was, uh, when I was first starting to understand scripture, I heard this phrase to work out your salvation and I, I think I misunderstood. I interpreted that to mean that it was, a, it was a, incumbent upon me as the follower to 
provide the effort. I had to work toward my salvation. That it was, I, there was something that I needed to do. That's not what Paul's talking about here. When he says to work it out, what he means is to live it out. We don't work toward salvation. It is provided for us. We accept it. But once we have it, it then spurs us to live differently. And that is how we shine. That is how we stand out. That is how we contrast as we live out what Jesus did for us and on our behalf. And we do it with fear and trembling simply because we understand how great a debt was paid. Not because we're afraid that God is going to come down from heaven and smack you down, but because we understand the debt that was owed and the debt that was paid. And so we live it out with fear and trembling because we know how serious it is. So that is the foundation. That's the first point. The foundation for a life of contrast is salvation. Number two, the next point here that I want to take a look at is uh, what is the fuel? What, what drives us? What is the fuel for a life of contrast? And before, um, so as we, before we get to that, so we'll take a look at the scripture here. Continuing in verse 13, uh, it, Paul writes, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So the fuel is God's energy and God's purpose in our lives. God's energy and God's purpose. God's energy is the fuel that drives us, and his purpose sets the course. So again, in verse 13, it says that it is God who works in you. That's how we know that in verse 12, when Paul says to work out your salvation, he's not expecting us to do it alone. He's saying God works in you to will and to act. Your will your desires, your drives, and your activity, your actions are fueled by him. When it says that God works in you, if you look up, I'm no Greek scholar by any stretch, but if you look up that word in the Greek, and I'm going to butcher this, but it appears to be pronounced energeo, which sounds an awful lot like energy. God's working in you. He's giving you the energy to move forward with a life of contrast, and we need it because it's hard. It's hard to live a life that is constantly set against the culture around us. But what, what does that look like if, if I'm supposed to be the one that's living, but it's God's purpose? What does that look like? So uh, a story came to mind a couple of years ago. Uh, my family went down to, uh, to Florida to the Panhandle for spring break, and we got to do one of these dolphin cruises which was, pre- it was pretty amazing. You go out on a cruise ship in a little uh, kind of the bay, and, uh, and the, the dolphins love to swim in the, in the wake of, of the boat. So you kind of just tool around for an hour and a half, and they, uh, you know, they're, they're there. There's great photo ops, and you're, you're driving around in this beautiful water, and the dolphins, it's almost like they, like they work for the, the dolphin cruise company. They just know, okay, well, it's the, it's the 215 shift. I got to go punch my clock and uh, get the, do the photo ops. But one of the things that they do on the dolphin cruise is they, they gather up all the kids and they let you be a kid captain. So you know what this looks like, right? You see the kids stand in line and then they go up to the top deck and they've got a little steering wheel up there and they put a, put a captain's hat on you and they give you a sticker and they let you drive the boat and mom or dad can take pictures on their phones. And the kids up there, like they're driving the boat, 
Like, yeah, I'm, I am. I am steering this thing. They're not steering the boat, right? It, I mean, that would be irresponsible to turn this cruise ship with, you know, with 100 people on it over to an eight-year-old. That, it's, that's not what's going on. What's going on? But the, the, the kid is there with, with the feeling of some control here, but what's really going on is that the captain is still driving the ship. They're allowing the kid to participate in driving, but the, but the captain's driving the ship. And in, in the same, same way, there, there are limits to this analogy, I will acknowledge, but in that same vein, it's God's purpose that is driving our ship. We have, we have to let him drive it, but his, his purpose is driving the ship, and what he's calling us to do is to step back and let him supply the energy. He's the, he's the electricity that's turning the motor that leads us to living a life of contrast, and he does it for his glory. Without God empowering the direction in our lives, the contrast won't, lie, won't last and it won't please him. And we see that he does it according to his good purpose, or some translations say his pleasure. He does it for his glory to fulfill his purpose. And we don't always understand what his purposes are, so we, we just need to step back and let him have control. So we see what the, the foundation of a life of contrast is salvation. The fuel is God's energy and his purpose. And the third thing I want to look at this morning is what is the fruit? What does it actually look like to live this life of contrast? What does that mean for us? And when we think of what a Christian life looks like, what, is it, what does it look like to live as a Christian, as a believer in Christ? A lot of times we boil it down to spiritual disciplines, right? We, we think about the activity of the Christian life. We think about praying. We think about reading our Bible. We think about fellowship and all the other stuff that Rick Warren wrote about, right? You know, fellowship and evangelism, sharing, uh, worship. We think about all the stuff that we do, and that's what it means to live as Christian, to live a life of contrast. And I don't think, if you, if you look at this passage, we don't see anywhere in Philippians 2, really very often in Scripture at all, a prescription for the Christian life. We don't see, hey, read this many times a day, come to church this many times a week or a year. There's, we don't get specific instructions on what to do because God doesn't want you to become saved so that you can check things off a list. He doesn't want you to get an ice cream cone from a summer reading program. He doesn't want to change what you do. He wants to change who you are. He wants a person, not a lifestyle. And the lifestyle flows out of it when God changes who you are. But it's important to understand that that's, that is what happens when we become saved is that God changes you from the inside out and the activity follows. And so we get some insight on who God wants us to be from Philippians 2. So I'm going to highlight a couple of these here quickly this morning. Um, and, and we're going to actually flip back. So the first one that I want to highlight is if we go back to Philippians verse 2, we see it says, uh, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. So the first, the first fruit of a life of contrast lived in striking unlikeness to the world around us is unity. It's being of one heart, particularly as, as the body of Christ, as God's people. When we live 
a life that is in fellowship and in unity with those around us, it will, it will present a striking contrast to the world around us. Because God's people come in all shapes and sizes, all heights and colors, and it, if we can demonstrate that we can set all that aside and follow him and focus on him and serve him with one heart and one mind, that will stand out. That will be different. The next thing that, I want, uh, that we see from Scripture is in the very next two verses, verses 3 and 4, it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. The idea here is humility. Putting others first. Serve others. And we immediately get the example uh, in Scripture to show us that it is in fact possible, and the example is that of Christ, as Paul writes about what Jesus did to set aside everything else and, and take up his cross. So when we put others first, because that is not the way that we are wired, folks. We, we know we are born with sin in our hearts, and our, our first reaction is almost always to think about what we need. So when we can put that aside and serve others first, that will present an example of striking unlikeness to the world around us. And the, the, the third attribute of a life of contrast that I wanted to highlight is fast forwarding to verse 14. And this is something that we heard a lot about this morning in our kids program, which is to do nothing, to do, excuse me, to do everything without grumbling or arguing. Don't, don't be a grumbler. Don't be an arguer. I mean, a grumbling and arguing is so pervasive in our culture. And, and I'll raise my hand as the, the, the chief of all grumblers. I mean, I'm, I'm really good at it. I, I love, there, there's something that feels good about grumbling because I, I feel like I know the way that things should go. And if, if you're doing something that's getting, getting in the way of that, it's, I, I feel like I'm, uh, I've got something to say. And, and what's interesting now in our culture today, when, when Paul was writing this, you, know, you couldn't tweet about it. But now, not only can I grumble under my breath to the person sitting next to me, I can make sure that everybody else knows the guy that cut me off in, uh, on the highway. That we can, we can grumble publicly just as easily as we can grumble to the person next to us, and we can grumble in our heart as well. So we don't, Paul says, don't grumble and don't argue. You know, grumbling is a, you know, gr it's, grumbling is sort of a, so internal, and I think arguing is, is external, it's a social response. But at the end of the day, when we grumble, we do it because we don't like God's plan, or we don't trust that what he's doing is going to work. Because if we truly trusted that God was working out his plan, there would be no need to grumble. There would be no need to argue. My wife shared a, a, a meme from social media with me that I thought was poignant uh, on this very topic, which said that if we're, if we're grumbling, every, every opportunity to grumble is a missed opportunity to pray. And every, every prayer is a missed opportunity to grumble. I think that's the antidote there. That's how we can avoid it. Instead of grumbling, instead of arguing, turn to prayer and trust God's plan and his purpose, which we know he is working out, as we saw in verse 13. So just quickly, one more thing here. This, uh, as a bonus, this doesn't start with an F, but the last point here that I think it is important to draw out is in verse 16 where Paul writes, 
to, we shine like stars in the universe as we hold out the word of life. It comes back around to the beginning to that foundational truth. We hold on to the word of life. And the word of life, when we hear the words word of life, we think of the Bible, but Paul didn't have the Bible as we know it today, so that's not what he was referring to. He wasn't thinking, well, you just need to turn to 1 John or the book of Acts. Like, they weren't written yet. So he's not talking about the Bible. He's talking about the word of truth, the gospel, the word of life. He's talking about the message, the foundational message of salvation. And and think of it like this. I've been doing a lot of traveling for work lately, which means I've been in a lot of airports. And when you get to an airport and you jump onto one of those commuter subway trams that take you from one terminal to the next, you know, you you roll your your suitcase on there and I got a shoulder bag and my suitcase. And so I got my hands are full. I've got my phone in one hand because I'm trying to figure out where I'm going. And you stand there and everything's fine because it's stationary. But then what happens, right? The door's shut and it takes off. And it lurches. And if you're not holding on to a railing or leaning against the wall, you're going to stumble. You are going to fall. Paul says here to hold out. In some translations, it says to hold firmly to, to hold fast the word of life. We've got to hold on to it because when when, when life lurches at us, and it will, If we're not holding on, we're going to stumble. We're going to lurch. We're going to bump into the person next to us. You're going to drop your phone. You're going to do something embarrassing. Hold firmly to the word of life. So so that's what, so we looked at the, the, the foundation, the fuel, and the fruit of a life lived in striking unlikeness to the world around us. And when we do these things, it is he who gets the glory because it will draw attention to him. Let's pray. Father, you showed us what it means to live a life of contrast. You sent your son, Jesus, into this world just to be that example. But it wasn't just to be as an example, it was to be our savior. Lord, we're, we're grateful for these truths this morning. Would they seep deeply into our hearts as we go forth this week? In Jesus' name, amen.